0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct
1: with Carl Truman. Today, I'm joined by Professor Carl Truman. Carl is Professor of History at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He's the author of many books on the Reformation and church history. More recently, he's written on modern cultural and political issues with books like Republocrat, Confessions of a Liberal Conservative, and most recently, the widely discussed, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and I have it here. So thank you very much indeed, Carl, for joining us.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on,
1: John. If we could begin, your background in history has been the Reformation, that great split between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants a little over 500 years ago, that reshaped Western Europe and has so shaped the world since. And yet you've written a book here that dissects our our present age. I think it would be useful just to explore briefly because so many people now decry the value of history or want to rewrite it to suit various other purposes, various agendas. How is history as opposed to, say, sociology, political science, philosophy, psychology, give us uh, a unique understanding of where we're at, of the present?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, John. I think part of the answer is, of course, that we are all historical beings we exist in particular places in time uh, and we are profoundly shaped by the world into which we're born which is the product itself of history so the way that uh, a 21st century australian thinks is is different for example to the way that a 4th century bc athenian would think question is why the same basic biology binds us all together, but why the difference between ancient Athens and, and modern-day Australia? Well, the answer is in large part historical, studying the historical processes that have led to the uh, the production of Australia, led to the way in which modern Australians think. So part of the answer to that, I think, is we're all historical beings. Uh, and secondly, related to that, uh, one of the things that I think we can all tend to do is absolutize our own age. We can tend to think that the way we think about the world is the way the world must be thought about. What historians do is relativize that. What historians do is they ask the question, why are these particular people thinking in this particular way, in this particular place, at this particular point in time? And again, I think history helps us uh, answer that. Uh, one could, for example, you, know, you mentioned philosophy, uh, psychology, etc. One could approach the issues I look at in the book from a purely philosophical or psychological perspective. But then there's a question that would lie behind that, and that is, Why these philosophies, why these psychological positions at this particular point in time? And that, again, would drive us back to the need to to understand our history. What are the forces, the factors that have shaped the way we think in our particular point in time?
1: And as you were writing this, it struck me that, uh, you know, during the Reformation, that period of history that you've studied so much, there was a lot of what we'd... uh, Perhaps recognised today as the toppling of statues and of icons, uh, there were heated battles over ideas in universities and in the wider society at large. Uh, it was not either an age known for toleration of different views or of even uh, freedom of speech or of conscience. I'm wondering whether, as you wrote this, you you, you saw some similarities with some of the trends that we're seeing today in. And what amounts to a massive shift in the way people think and perceive themselves and those around them?
0: Yes, very much so. I think the thing that binds today together with the Reformation more than anything else is the fact that the Reformation was in large part the result of a revolution in information technology. The invention of the printing press in the 15th century fueled Uh, the the social movements that ultimately became the Reformation. What you see in the 16th century is a dramatic reconfiguring of social relations, a dramatic reconfiguration of of how power is understood and distributed within society, connected to this technological revolution uh, of the the printing press. Today, of course, much of of what we see going on around us, much of the chaos, much of the, the flux and change, is also tied to a a revolution in information technology, the rise of the internet, the rise of social media. So there's a a definite connection or parallel, I think, between the, the social upheavals of the 16th century and the social upheavals we're witnessing today. Where that parallel, I'm not sure if the parallel breaks down or merely becomes much more disturbing, is that the amount of techn- the amount of information that the printing press was generating that was creating this social disturbance is minuscule compared to that which we now see today from, from the internet. Uh, it's the information we receive today must be a hundredfold, a thousandfold, ten thousandfold, what was possible in the reformation. And so if you think that we are seeing now that the kind of explosion of information that we saw in the Reformation, but maybe a hundred or a thousand times faster. That raises all kinds of questions. When you think the Reformation witnessed a hundred years of bloodshed and chaos in Europe before things finally stabilized, what is our current revolution in information technology and social media? What is that bringing down the line for us? It's hard to tell at this point, but I think there is a, a warning from history there, most certainly.
1: Yes, it strikes me. It's not only the, um, the reach and the multiplication of, um, of voices that the, that the social media and so forth has given us. It's also the technology for invasive monitoring of people's individual lives that hands a power to not just a social movement, but also to an authoritarian government at the other level that has never been uh, there before. Uh, and that's a new and terrifying element to my way of thinking, uh, because it gives people the capacity for a level of, of, of control uh, and uh, based on monitoring of people's activities that's, ne- that's not been available to an authoritarian state or to anybody else in the past. So th- this is a, a technological revolution, as you say, in the mold of the printing press and what have you, but so much more widespread further reaching.
0: reaching. Yes, I think that's a very astute point. I mean, there is a there is a qualitative difference there that what we are witnessing, one could put it this way, we're seeing the, the complete annihilation of the private sphere. Western society has always been predicated on the public sphere and the private sphere. And although the boundaries between them have, have often been permeable, by and large, we've been able to, to keep them separate. Now we're in a position where uh, there is no private sphere. What you say on your Facebook account could cost you your job, could cost you your reputation. So I think that's a very astute comment. And again, that puts us into unprecedented territory. On the one hand, yet we know what media revolutions can look like, because we can look back at the Reformation. But this kind of complete transformation of the private sphere or abolition of the private sphere. This is unprecedented. This is unprecedented and very disturbing.
1: Mm. Um, so to come to the book and set up where we might go from here, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, perhaps it would be useful if you to give us a bit of a feeling for what you mean by the modern self, because you're plainly implying that it's a different self.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is a common sense way we all use the, the, the word self. I mean, I'm aware that I'm not I'm not John Anderson. You're aware you're not Carl Truman. There's that kind of common sense uh, understanding of our, what we might call a sphere of self-consciousness. And we use the term self in, in a common sense way uh, like that. The way I'm using it in the book, though, is, is in a more technical kind of way. What I'm trying to get at with the notion of the modern self is what is it that makes modern people tick? What is it that makes us feel that life is worthwhile? Where do we ground our identity? How do we understand happiness? And I use a contrast in the book between myself and my grandfather. My grandfather had what I would regard as as a very uh, boring job. He was a sheet metal worker in the industrial heartland of England in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He spent his day on a production line doing the same thing day in, day out. Pretty sure that if I'd asked him, granddad, do you get job satisfaction? He'd have said, sure. I, I get paid a, 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 a fair day's wage for an honest day's work, and I'm able to put shoes on my children's feet, put uh, bread on the table. I'm able to meet my commitments to other people, and that gives me great satisfaction. If you ask me the same question, my intuitive response is going to be, I get a real buzz out of standing in front of a class and teaching kids. I get a psychological buzz from from what I do intrinsically. And the difference between myself and my grandfather, I would say, is the difference really between the modern self and that which precedes it. My grandfather's understanding of selfhood, in my sense, was outwardly directed. He was who he was because of his ability to meet his commitments to other people. For myself, it's a much more psychological thing. It's, It's how I feel. It's what are the things I do? How do they make me feel in an immediate psychological way? So the modern self uh, of the book's title is really a a highly psychologized self that has come to regard personal happiness as an inner feeling of contentment and fulfillment as as that psychological sense of of well-being.
1: Almost uh, a modern insistence then that, you have a right to be happy, not a right just to pursue happiness. You have a right to be happy. And that plays into some of the other things I think we're going to talk about. If, you, if you're if you not happy, then someone must be to blame, but it couldn't be me.
0: Absolutely. And of course, if you understand happiness as primarily psychological, then anyone who's hurting your feelings is a hindrance to your happiness.
1: Seems it also has uh, great implications for what might be called uh, the Western economic system of capitalism as well. If once satisfaction was about doing a hard day's work and saving and building wealth for the sake of your family, that's a vastly different thing to pursuing wealth so that I can enjoy myself and be psychologically happy personally. And so it has major implications, I think, too, for what might loosely be called the efficiency and indeed the morality of capitalism.
0: Yes, uh, I think so. When you look at the, the falling birth rates in, in, the, in the developed world at the moment, again, you see that sort of playing out that children come to be seen as well. They're the things that consume my wealth. They can stand in the way of me being happy because they involve emotional and financial commitments that, frankly, I might not want to make if I simply want to uh, uh,
1: be my own person. Well, now, coming to, uh, you spend a lot of time uh, on um, several great thinkers. One of them is Nietzsche. Now, he famously said that God is dead. uh, And, of course, uh, you contrast uh, what he meant by that and how his atheism differs from the modern atheism, the God delusion, Richard Dawkins, um, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris. There's a difference, isn't there? You you almost draw a distinction between this sort of chipper, happy atheism and Nietzsche's atheism, which led him to a very dark place.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely correct there. There's a, what I would call a sort of atheistic humanism that is represented by, you mentioned Dawkins, Dennett, uh, the late Chris Vichens. I would put Steven Pinker, the American uh, uh, academic in that category, who have a tremendous confidence that Freed from bondage to theism, freed from bondage to religion, human beings will, will be able to, to flourish and, and live lives of, of happiness and fulfillment. I think what Nietzsche saw that, that I, as a, as a Christian, can sympathize with, it's odd to sympathize with Nietzsche, but I think he's, he's onto something here in a way that the, the atheistic humanists are not. What Nietzsche saw is that there is a, a deep darkness. And a destructiveness to to human nature in the raw that atheistic humanism simply cannot give an account of. And and that's why I would also throw Freud into that mix as well. I would say Freud has a much more realistic understanding of uh, of the darkness of human nature than the atheistic humanists such as Dawkins and, and company have. It would be lovely if their vision of human nature was the correct one, but all the evidence points towards a much darker picture uh, i think
1: it's an interesting thing isn't it that uh, it's a powerful illustration of of just how dangerous great ideas can be because Nietzsche became if you like uh, something of an informer for the hideous uh, emergence of fascism in the 20th century in fact i'm told a historical sort of bon mot on the way through that when Mussolini first met Hitler he gave him a collection of Nietzsche's books because Nietzsche saw perhaps uh, he could have joined uh, forces with GK Chesterton they said when you stop believing in God you don't believe in something else you believe in anything Um, uh, and so you had this 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 sort of he looks into the abyss and sees that the only morality left is a struggle for power well in a sense that's fascism it's always about power and, and there's an interesting parallel now with the obsession that you see in much of the modern debate about, I want to be empowered, I want power. Yeah, I think it, what we see is, to,
0: to borrow the title of, of Laney Riefenstahl's uh, film of the the Nuremberg rallies, the Nazi Nuremberg rallies, what we're seeing today in politics is the triumph of the will, which is a profoundly Nietzschean title, of course, and uh, what, we, what we now see in, in society, I think, are essentially... Uh, competitions for the exertion of the power of my group or my identity over yours. Everything is very red in tooth and claw. And the idea of uh, respect for difference, respect for those with whom we we happen to differ politically, uh, is really very much at a premium at the moment because of the, the way that Nietzsche's demolition of the notion of human nature and replacement of it with this idea of the will to power has proved very, very damaging, very damaging indeed. Hmm.
1: I, I, I see what you're saying, and, and I find it chilling. Um, now, throughout uh, this book, uh, you, you use the term anti-culture to describe modern Western society. Can you just pat out for us, what do you mean by this term, and how do we see it and identify this, uh, this anti-cultural trend that you refer to?
0: sure the term i borrow the term from the uh, american sociologist philip reef who's profoundly influenced by freud in his take on culture and reef argued that what we're living in today is not so much a culture but an anti-culture in order to understand what he means by that it's important to grasp the specific way that reef uses the term culture and for reef culture refers to those institutions uh, that are Uh, whose purpose is to transmit the values of one generation or one age to the next. In other words, culture is is the process by which continuity is established in society, a continuity of values, continuity of behavior, continuity of belief. And what Reeve points out is that really, since the the Second World War, and certainly gaining tremendous speed in the 1960s and beyond, that the, the institutions that one would typically have regarded as being, uh, whose, whose purpose one would have seen as, as the transmission of values from one generation to the next. Uh, for example, the elites, the, the literary elites, the, the cultural elites, uh, uh, the political elites, they have become committed not so much to transmitting the values of the past as demolishing the values of the past in order the function of these cultural elites becomes not preservation of transmission, on occasion, modification of the traditions of the past, it becomes uh, the destruction of the past, the destruction of those traditions. You see this very much in, in Hollywood, for example, in movies, which uh, would traditionally, well, certainly now uh, mock, for example, the traditional family, uh, mock the wisdom, the idea that the, the, the elderly are wise, Uh, mock uh, the church, mock mock religious institutions. Most Hollywood movies that deal with these kind of uh, institutions are targeted at undermining them, at making them look ridiculous. We see it in modern art. Uh, Modern art is not uh, uh, something that builds upon the the skills, the insights uh, of the artists of the past. It's often something that pitches itself against those things. So, an anti-culture is one marked by a profound disrespect and repudiation of of the
1: past. It certainly builds this idea in my mind that uh, in the West today we face massive external forces and internal forces at the first at the same time. We're sort of concurrently caught in a in a pincer movement uh, where, where where there's a, an enormous desire to destruct everything that we, uh, we've believed in our societies. Now, um, you you call Marx and Darwin and Nietzsche as arguably, I'm quoting here, the most influential as fountainheads for later developments up to the present day, which is a remarkable thing to say. I mean, I often comment to people that Marx was buried in, I think, Highgrove Cemetery on a wet, drizzly day in England and 11 people were at his funeral. If it hadn't been for others picking up the idea, he'd have been forgotten. He wasn't seen as relevant at the time that he died. And yet... Uh, you know, the, his influence, as you argue, has been absolutely massive and often only dimly understood. So how can you give us a bit of a potted view of why you've identified those three people as being so important to shaping the world that we now live in? Sure. And, and actually, just as a postscript
0: to your comments on Marx's burial in Highgate Cemetery, had you been there that day, you'd have heard Friedrich Engels delivering an address at the graveside where he declared that within 50 years, everybody would, in the world would know the name of Karl Marx. And you'd have thought that he was some weirded, beardy tramp, lunatic. And of course, within 50 years, that well, that takes you up to post-Russian revolution. Uh, Engels was weirdly prophetic. And there's a lesson there, I think, that however mad somebody seems, uh, what one, one needs to, to hear what's being said and take it seriously. Uh, the three of these figures uh, all have, in some ways, they all uh, set forth ideas that have now become part of the intuitions, really, of of Western culture. All three of them, I think, are bound together by the fact that in their different ways, they call into serious question uh, the the idea of human nature. Now, what do I mean by that? What I, I don't mean by that, that they question the idea that there's something biological that binds you and me together. There's something biological that means that uh, human males can only reproduce with human females. They weren't calling into question the the basic biological reality of human beings. What they called into question was the idea that that, that human nature, merely being a biological human being, carried with it uh, uh, an intrinsic moral structure for Marx, morality was really just the, the function of the economic relations that applied at any given particular point in time in a society. And they were designed to, to rationalize and naturalize the, the means of exploitation that pertained at that particular point in time. For Nietzsche, morality was a con pulled by one group in society to make another group weak. And for Darwin, of course, Darwin's a little different, he's not so philosophical, he's a scientist, but for Darwin, uh, human nature is is merely uh, the result of an evolutionary or sort of random, metaphysically random evolutionary process, and what we think of of morality, morality is not something that has transcendental binding significance, it merely reflects the the needs, the exigencies of the the uh, evolutionary process. So all three of them, I think, did did serious damage to the notion of of human nature as carrying with it a a moral structure. Then they also make individual contributions. I think for Marx, Marx's most significant contribution, certainly for understanding the politics of our day, is Marx makes all relations ultimately political. Uh, That's why, you know, the Boy Scouts... Uh, the Girl Guides, cake baking—all of these things are now highly politicized because all of them ultimately tie back to the the structure of society and the the exploitation that underlies that structure. Uh, Nietzsche, through his emphasis upon the the sort of the radical will of the individual, as we mentioned a few moments ago, really opens the way for. Uh, For me, seeing morality as a cynical ploy by you to make me do your will, and therefore morality has to be opposed if I'm going to be truly myself. And Darwin relativizes human beings with his theory of evolution, and the the genius of the theory of evolution is that for all of the complexities that underlie the theory— It's expressed in a scientific idiom, which is very powerful in the modern era. If you can express something scientifically, it carries weight. And also, it's very simple to understand on one level. Human beings look like monkeys, look like chimpanzees. The Earth seems to be very old. Surely there's a connection between the two. That's a very plausible story to tell. So the three of them, in their different ways, really set up numerous aspects of, of the modern way we we imagine ourselves and the world to be
1: interestingly as, a, as a, again a, just a sort of an observation along the way I've often thought to myself that uh, Darwin would have the one would have been the one who would have been most personally distressed by the way in which his work and his views was to play out in sociologically so to speak and politically in such ugly ways I, you know <clears throat> the survival of the fittest one of the things that informed the Nazi idea, and even Hitler's refusal to withdraw—you uh, know, when um, his, his men were dying in horrific numbers, and all of his commanders were saying, "Pull them back, uh, let them retreat," and he'd say, "No, they're not worthy of living if they're not tough enough. If they're not the, you know, the the uh, the class that deserves to survive." Uh, I think Darwin himself would have been horrified at, at where some of his uh, observations led. Thinking in the West after his death.
0: Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think the whole social Darwinist project and, of course, racial theory, all track back to kind of twisted perversions of what Darwin himself, I think, was trying to do. So, yeah, I think he's he's often criticised for the results of his thinking. But hey, I'm a teacher. I don't want to be held responsible for what some of my yeah. students have gone off and done. And I think we need to be charitable on that front.
1: Yes. Um, Now, to return then to Marx, we hear a lot of talk today about cultural Marxism. Uh, And I think I would be one of those who'd argue that uh, people say, oh, don't be silly. There's no such thing. Uh, It seems to me that many of the people who have pushed cultural Marxism have used the term themselves. So I don't know why we shouldn't. But a major theme of your book uh, relates to the marriage between Marx and Freud. And uh, you talk about how this has influenced the sexual revolution through thinkers like Reich and and Marcus, is there explanatory power that much of what we're seeing today, including in the the sexual revolution, so-called, of the 60s and 70s, of what some might call cultural Marxism? Well, perhaps first, what do you mean by sexual revolution? So we've got that right. And what are its linkages to these, these thinkers and their influence? Sure,
0: good questions. When I use the term sexual revolution, I'm really talking about the... The dramatic transformation in attitudes to sex, sexuality, sexual behavior that's taken the West by storm since the 1960s. One of the points I try to make in the book is that when I'm talking about the sexual revolution, therefore, I'm not talking about an expansion of the the range of acceptable sexual behaviors. I'm actually talking about something much more radical than that, that the whole way sex and sexuality is understood has been dramatically transformed over the last 40 or 50 years. And central to that is this close connection that is drawn by certain Marxists, really from the 1930s onwards, between sexual morality and uh, the way society oppresses certain categories of people which leads them then to see sexual liberation, the, de- the demolition of traditional sexual codes and notions of, of identity as central to political revolution. And it arises out of this, you, you mentioned this this marriage of Marx and Freud in the 1930s, a group of Marxist thinkers uh, are wrestling with the problem as why did the revolution happen in Russia, which was a peasant society, and it didn't happen in Germany, where you have a highly developed industrial working class uh, and they've just lost a war. You know, the conditions for revolution are perfect in Germany, where it fails and nobody would have expected it to happen in Russia because Russia was a peasant society and it succeeds. And the answer they come up with uh, is that the, the key to revolution is is psychology. The key to revolution is developing uh, this revolutionary psychology within people and making them understand psychologically the means of oppression that pertain in the societies they find themselves. And one of the, the connections that a man like Wilhelm Reich or Mark Herbert Marcuse makes is, you know, the working classes are brought up in these very strong families where the father figure is a very powerful figure. Uh, and that trains them to look for the powerful father figure when they become adults, Mussolini, Hitler, etc. This explains why the working classes are attracted to fascism on their account. So what do we need to do? We need to demolish the family. We need to shatter the family. And of course, what marks families out more than anything else is that families are the places where sexual codes are cultivated and enforced. And therefore, by demolishing the sexual codes that underlie the notion of the the monogamous lifelong marriage that is the foundation for the, uh, the nuclear family, by demolishing these, we can achieve political revolution. And that's sort of taken on a life of its own. It's not that everybody today has read Reich or Marcuse, far from it. But this notion that for me to be fully and freely me means that I must be able to express myself sexually in any way I wish that really has come to grip the popular imagination. And it's because it's, it involves the transformation of culture rather than a violent sort of proletarian revolution, it's often referred to as, as cultural Marxism, which can sometimes be a cheap shot when it's thrown by critics, but also has a, a certain very definite ring of truth to it in many circumstances as well.
1: Hmm. And you you refer to Freud. You say his fingerprints are all over the Western culture of the last century, from university lecture halls to art galleries and television commercials. How is modern society Freudian?
0: Yeah, good question. I think two obvious ways. Uh, One, the fact that we now tend to think of sex as identity. That's that's Freud. Freud is the man who really uh, says, you know, that... That inner space, those feelings we have that we tend to think of as defining who we are, at the foundational level, they're sexual. So in, a, in short, you are your sexual desires. If you go back to ancient Greece, there's a lot of homosexuality, but nobody's identifying as gay because homosexuality is something you do, not something you are. Today, you can identify as a gay man without ever having had a sexual experience. Why? Because you identify yourself by your sexual desires. That's Freud. Freud. Uh, second uh, element of Freud, and, and commercials are a great example of this, is that Freud realizes that human beings are motivated by desire. It's the things we desire that really shape who we are and how we behave. If you look at early commercials for cars, for automobiles, they're often sold cars on the basis of, buy this car and you can get efficiently from point A to point B. I drive a little sports car. I don't want to drive a car that gets me efficiently from point A to point B. I want to drive a car that feels good to drive, that sends out a certain image. I want my desires satisfied by what I buy. When you look at commercials, generally speaking, they're not selling you a product. They're selling you an image. They're selling you something that will meet that desire. So Western society is deeply Freudian, both in how we think of identity and and how we think of of what constitutes the good life.
1: It was Henry Ford II, wasn't it, who said, Don't sell the car, sell it, don't, don't sell the sausage, sell the sizzle. Yeah. Um, in, a, in relation to his motor cars. Oh. I may be doing Ford an injustice, but it was an American automaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's sizzle, certainly why
0: we sausage. buy cars. It's yeah. certainly why we buy cars,
1: I think. Interesting, this question uh, to, to take it up for a moment. Uh, uh, we know that uh, delayed gratification is is incredibly important uh, for people running their lives successfully. It's not giving way to the desire instantly to do what you want to do right now in the way that you want to. It's being at least prepared to delay that gratification of that desire uh, that uh, a lot of people talk of as being terribly support, important for people living successful lives and building successful societies. But it's, it's being washed out as well, isn't it, this, this willingness to put desire ahead, aside for now, whether the desire is a right one or a wrong one, it might be a perfectly healthy one, but the willingness to say, no, not now, discipline, self-discipline, focus, um, absolutely, and, and a willingness to make sacrifices.
0: And I think that ties back to the kind of self that we've seen emerge in the modern age. If you identify happiness with an inner sense of psychological, an immediate sense of psychological satisfaction, then delayed gratification becomes increasingly hard to to justify. And indeed, Nietzsche, go back to Nietzsche, Nietzsche offers a sort of rationalization for this in that he has this, uh, this thought experiment, which he calls the eternal return, which could be summarized by saying, you know, if you were to if you and i were to come back john for all eternity and relive this moment this moment we're experiencing now would we be able to bear that would that drive us crazy or would we embrace it and the tendency of that kind of thinking is to make every moment one of ecstasy i want to maximize my ecstasy in any given particular moment because there is no ultimate purpose in life There are only moments of pleasure that one can grasp in life. So rather than building up a business so that you can pass it on to your children so they will have some sort of security for their future, why bother? If it's all about me in this moment, then I'm going to put it on my credit card. I'm not going to scrimp and save. I'm going to buy it now. So again, I think you're pointing to something very deep and ultimately something I think will be very damaging to society because it's further accents the immediate pleasure of the individual rather than any uh, wider or broader responsibility?
1: Well, I would have said to me, it seems uh, uh, that the early evidence is pretty clear. It's not working very well. We've got extraordinary levels of unhappiness in our societies, which just seems to further feed the whole sort of psychology of victimhood that it must be somebody's fault. Uh, I'm doing everything right. I'm pursuing happiness. I don't feel happy. So I must somehow have been victimised. But um, it, it brings me no joy to say that. But I, I, I don't perceive a lot of happiness around me. For many years I was in public life, I, would, uh, I was often dismayed by the number of constituents I could see in a day who, who were profoundly unhappy uh, in their own lives. They'd, they'd present with a problem, the government must do this, the government must do that. And as you talk, you'd realise that they were increasingly dissatisfied with their lot. It's not as if this is building us a great nirvana.
0: No, I think we um, we have. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but certainly America. Catastrophic levels of depression and suicide among teenage kids, uh, mm. who on the surface, many of whom live, how, you know, more stable and more prosperous lives as teenagers than my father did. My father's earliest memories were running to the bomb shelter. During the Blitz of Birmingham, and then he spent his youth in the shadow of rationing, Cold War, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, I'm sure if my father was still alive, he would say that he had a more happy, and stable, and secure youth than than many of the kids who enjoy outwardly more material prosperity and stability than than he did. Uh, it is it is an interesting phenomenon and and a very disturbing one.
1: Yeah, well, I must say it's part of the reason that we're having this very conversation today. Uh, From my perspective, I'm just so concerned as a father and and as a grandfather now as to what we're passing on, the way in which we've caught our children in these culture wars. It's very dislocating for them. They're told to work out their own identity now, but we can't give them much of a clue as to what their identity might be. Uh, And that leads us on to where the revolution's got us to today. You actually call transgenderism the latest movement of this revolution of the self. And, as you so starkly uh, put it in this book, uh, your father and my father would have found this idea that uh, I'm actually trapped in the wrong body uh, i i'm 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 a woman but uh, trapped in a man's body or vice versa. I want to change. They would have found that incomprehensible. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. and I think it would be fair to say that in Australia. Outside the circles of the elites, this is deeply troubling. How did we get here? Is this possible? And if one of my children comes home and says, I'm trapped in the wrong body, how do I cope with it? And there's an awareness that in at least one state in Australia, unless you offer the affirmation model with no qualifications, you may end up in deep trouble before the law. How on earth did we get here? And how do we cope with it? So we've gone from um, you know a, a position where people would not have understood to one where if you oppose it, you're somehow backward-looking, inward-looking, stupid, even bad. How did we get there? I mean, how do we unpack this? You've given us a good lead-in. You're saying this is the ultimate expression of it. Uh, what does it really look like?
0: Yeah, well, it's... It is a long and somewhat convoluted story, but at the heart of it lies this increasing uh, authorization that we've talked about of inner psychological happiness. As soon as one identifies the self with feelings, what you're doing there is, is creating a self that is inherently antagonistic towards any kind of external authority. And what we've seen over the last 300 years is the slow erosion of external authority uh, in relation to those internal feelings, to the point where the reason I call transgenderism sort of the latest movement in this, in this revolution is, you know, w- what was left at the turn of the 20th and 21st century, what was left of external authority? Well, to an extent, the body. You were still born with a particular body. You were still born a boy or a girl. Well, that's fallen now too, because guess what? We've decided to turn gender into a psychological construct and detach it from anything physical. So that's on one level quite bizarre. It's unprecedented in human history. It's very disturbing because unlike other debates, uh, I I mean, I've said this to numerous people on on a number of occasions that, you know, if my neighbors happen to be a a married gay couple, I may disagree with that. I may find that problematic in terms of my own religious convictions, but it doesn't do me any harm, shall we say, as Thomas Jefferson would say, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Transgenderism, of course, is transforming public space. It's transforming women's sports. It's transforming uh, public and school bathroom policy. Uh, Transgenderism is this moment when the revolution of the self starts to affect everybody. It starts to invade the last vestiges of private space that we have. It's very disturbing. You rightly point out that uh, I think it is, it's an elite project being driven by the elites. The problem of course is that the elites are elites and they tend to control the means by which culture is formed and influenced. It's an anti-culture and they can hold all the levers of power. And also the other irony of this rather radical subjective notion of selfhood is, you cannot have a society where everybody decides who they are as an individual, because some identities contradict other identities. Somebody's got a referee, the shooting match. And so we end up with this rather odd situation that you've alluded to where radical libertarian view of the self, hey, I can be whoever I feel I am or whoever I want to be, leads to an oddly authoritarian form of government. Uh, you referred to one of the Australian territories as as introducing what sound like fairly draconian measures uh, on on enforcing this kind of identity politics. Well, on the one hand, I found that I find that ups- disturbing and obnoxious. On the other hand, it makes sense because somebody's got to enforce these psychological identities. And it's going to guess what? It's going to be the psychological identities that the the elites in our society favor. The rest of us, in our private lives, have to pay the mortgage on this experiment. Uh, But the elites will impose it on us, I think, regardless.
1: Yeah, well, it was done under the cover of uh, so-called gay conversion, uh, outlawing so-called gay conversion laws. Uh, The research showed uh, that almost no people in that state understood the legislation was even being tabled, and even fewer, and it was quite apparent to me, uh, having been one, most of the politicians involved in it, knew nothing about it either. Uh, but if you dared to oppose them, uh, you know, you're a person of of uh, the most sort of um, illegitimate character you could possibly imagine, a bigot and a whatever. And yet, as we now know from the Kira Bell case in the UK, uh, you know, uh, she was a young lady who, uh, you know, took Tavistock to court, but the, the, the entity, the medical outfit that had given her sex-changing hormones and what have you, uh, she came to deeply regret that she'd not been offered an alternative. In other words, that she'd only been subjected to the affirmation model uh, and uh, now deeply regrets it. Uh, And that seems to be quite a common thing. But again, logic and statistics and data are discarded here in pursuit of the ideological end. And We now have uh, the Tokyo Olympics uh, witnessed a situation uh, where the New Zealand weightlifting team, women's weightlifting team, saw someone excluded because uh, a a, a biological man, I would have said, identifying as a woman took her place. And I can understand how that young lady and her family would feel very let down, to put it mildly, and, and very confused by that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's a very contentious issue. I think, first of all, on the statistics, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the arguments that's often made on the transgender stuff is if we're not affirming, then suicide rates are catastrophic. Well, suicide rates are catastrophic anyway among transgender people, even those who've gone through the transition. Uh, and it's nothing to do with whether society is affirming or not. Sweden is very interesting on this front. Sweden has been a very transgender affirming society for a very long time, and the suicide rates run at pretty much the same as they do in the United States. They're catastrophic, which to any sane human being would indicate that a transgender person. Is clearly having very serious struggles that need to be taken very seriously and very compassionately. But the problem isn't that they're trapped in the wrong body; the problem is something else. And that they, you know, when you look back to the bulimia crisis of the of the of the of the eighties and the nineties, where you had people claiming that they were thin people trapped in fat bodies, et cetera, et cetera, nobody affirmed the bulimics at that point. Everybody saw there was a problem and an issue, and it typically wasn't. A problem with food it was something else that had to be addressed and I think that's what we need to get to as a society we need to to help these people with with great compassion and sensitivity but what we're doing at the moment is is playing politics with their lives and and that's that's very very disturbing you point to the the British case and I think what was good about that case is that this uh this person has a powerful story The transgender movement has been triumphing so far because it has these powerful stories that pull on the heartstrings. As more powerful stories emerge on the other side of the equation, we may start to see the pendulum swinging back. Sadly, those stories are going to be testimonies of of heartbreak and bodily mutilation and real tragedy. And it's very sad that there's going to be a lot of human carnage along the road. But I am somewhat more sanguine about the transgender issue than about other aspects of the sexual revolution because i think the transgender lobby is taking on it's taking on too many politically vested interests it's taking on nature and it's also starting to crack because it's simply not able to deliver on its own claims at this point so I, i'm i i'm more sanguine about the transgender Issue, even though very sad that it, nothing will change until countless human lives have been damaged.
1: There's a new emoji on the way, I gather, or a set of emojis demonstrating, um, you know, a very male-looking figure complete with moustache who's pregnant.
0: Well, uh, uh, yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, on this affirmation model, you know, you must affirm lest you damage, that leads into something else about the psychological man, so to speak, I suppose you'd say, or person. Um, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, all of the freedoms, it's hard to put a hierarchy on them. They go together, I think, uh, uh, along with freedom of assembly and, uh, and so forth. Um, they're all under attack now, really, uh, in the UK, Uh, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, certainly in New Zealand, particularly, interesting isn't it, the Five Eyes countries as they're known, uh, under the pretext uh, of preventing harm, these things are under attack. And there seems to have been over the last decade, particularly, uh, you know, amongst young people, uh, a loss of the idea uh, and recognition of the significance of freedom of speech. It's now, you know, um, uh, you, you should only be free to say things that do no harm which is very different indeed. Um, I often say to people, actually, many of the most painful moments in my life are when somebody's told me a a raw truth that I've either not recognised or been in denial about, and I've had to work it through, and it's been very painful, and I've resented it. But now we're tending to make these sorts of, um, if you like, honest contributions when we give one another character references. Sometimes, you know, the old saying... uh, you know, what I'm saying doesn't mean I don't love you. It may be because I do love you. You need to hear this. But no, you can't do that because you may be harming people in this new age. And you you analyze this rise of um, the psychological man, the triumph of the therapeutic, the persuasive concept of psychological harm. These seem to me to be very dangerous to our freedoms and to our workability as a society. And yet Many younger people would say, I'm talking nonsense, that, 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 that they're the very things we need to do if we're to help people um, avoid victimhood, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and I think you've given a very good summary there of, of how a lot of the younger generation think about these things. When you think about you know, the great apostle of freedom of religion in the United States, Thomas Jefferson, his famous statement, you know, what does it matter to me if my neighbor believes in one God, 20 gods, or no gods at all? It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Jefferson's sense of selfhood was connected to uh, his freedom from bodily harm and his freedom to own property. Uh, That was the, the underlying notion of the self. Now we live in a world where the self is understood in these psychological terms. Of course, harm has been itself dramatically psychologized. So speaking words that that interfere with my inner sense of psychological happiness becomes the equivalent of violence. As we've, we've heard over the last uh, two years, we we hear about words being uh, the equivalent of violence, doing harm. Uh, and I think that is, is worrying on a number of fronts. One, as you rightly pointed out, there's a pedagogical dimension to this that that one grows up by colliding with ideas that, you don't want to listen to, whether they're philosophical ideas in general or whether uh, particular suggestions relative to your own personal attitudes. Uh, We grow as human beings by uh, by being transformed by ideas coming at us from the the outside. Uh, Secondly, to return somewhat to an earlier answer I gave, uh, who gets to define harm in this context? Uh, it, it tends to be those with the best lobby groups. It tends to be those with their uh, hands on the levers of cultural power. So what you see is a kind of totalitarianism or authoritarianism on the horizon. And that leads me to the third thing that's most worrying about the situation in which we find ourselves in that for, for guys of my generation and yours, John, I think the, the fear was always of authoritarian governments. It was. You know, I grew up in the shadow of the Cold War in Europe. The, the, the great fear was an authoritarian or worse still, a totalitarian government taking over and controlling speech. What we're seeing now is big business controlling speech. Amazon yeah. has the power to pull Ryan Anderson's very uh, moderately worded criticism of the transgender movement, his book, When Harry Became Sally, Amazon has the power to pull that book and sending a signal that anybody else who writes a book like this, you're not going to be able to sell it on Amazon that sell 90% of the books in the United States. So you're not going to find a publisher. No publisher wants to publish a book where 90% of the, the potential market is already off limits before the book uh, emerges from the printing press. So the third thing that's really worrying to me at this point is our speech is going to be restricted by people for whom there is no democratic accountability at all. And I'm not sure that political philosophers have yet wrestled with this at a depth that allows us to think about a solution. Um, Big tech, to go back to the Information technology revolution we began with, you know, the printing press created this explosion of freedom of speech. Big tech is actually in danger of leading to its dramatic restriction at this point, and I think that's a very, very worrying development.
1: This is it very interesting, isn't it? Because this new authoritarianism that you talk about, part of its mantra is that you must not offend. Mm-hmm. So. You can, you know, by, by hurting people emotionally, you are harming them. Therefore, you know, all sorts of things that we've believed in in the past, including a lot of Christian belief, the foundation, very foundations of our society, can be harmful. So you mustn't issue. But there's a, the flip side of the coin is not only the censorship that you talk about, there's something worse. It is apparently permissible for certain elites to hurl the most unbelievable abuse via social media to the point where we now know that, um, you know, cancel culture and so forth and all the manifestations of, of, of ugly hatred that it reflects can literally reduce some young people to suicide. So you've got a complete double standard here. It's uh, do as I say, not do as I do for a lot of these elites. Absolutely. I
0: think if you're a uh I've noticed this in the United States. Uh, If somebody on the the conservative side of things hurls an insult, they can be finished. If somebody on the left hurls an insult, then they're speaking genuinely from the heart. That tends to be how it's played. Uh, And I think the issue there is, if you are affirming the values of the dominant elites, you can get away with anything. If you're opposing them at any level, you can expect to be crushed.
1: And in one sense, the, that's not new. That's been historically true. It's just that there are new mechanisms uh, being used to advance new agendas that perhaps we haven't seen before. Uh, but the, the sort of philosophical capacity to dis- want to destroy others is, is, is as alive as ever. Now, tell me to the future then. We've touched on this issue. Uh, you think that perhaps the tran- transgenderism movement has, to use an expression that you didn't, but but there's overreach there. It's got to the point where people just sort of say, look, this really is nuts. I'm not going to put up with it. Uh, You know, I'm not going to be put in a situation where I can't sit down and have a calm conversation with my child and point to the reality that you may be feeling uncomfortable now, but we need to work this through and I'm not just going to automatically affirm everything you say. So uh, perhaps overreach there, but as a historian, do you think, how, how more broadly do you think is what we've painted here is a picture between the elites and the common man. Now you've seen in America the whole sort of Trump thing, which and I've always seen Trump as a more the reflection of the problem than the cause of the problem. You've got a lot of people saying, This is just nuts. And you've got a great division and that's painful to watch. But where might it settle, you know? And and what can we as individuals do to try and help find a more peaceful and sensible and respectful place uh, in the middle where we can demonstrate a better way?
0: Yeah, very good question. If I had the answers to that, I could write a bestseller and be a very rich man. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I, I think that you're absolutely right in seeing Trump as. reflecting a division that already, you know, Trump only got elected because the country was already divided. Uh, So that's a very astute uh, observation. I think in general, when we look at Western civilization, you know, as a historian, you can look back across the centuries and there are societies and civilizations that commit suicide and there are those that pull back from the brink. The only way of telling which is which is to see whether they put the pistol back on the table or whether they pull the trigger. Yeah, right up until the very last minute, you don't know. So it's possible Western civilization might simply fall apart. I don't think that any civilization that has has survived justifying itself merely on the basis of itself which is where we are now i think it is pure pragmatism that rules the the way we are organizing our societies at that point in time and Mm -hmm. i think that's a very precarious place to be and a lot of the instability we see around us derives from the fact that we can only appeal to the way things are there's nothing greater or larger that we can appeal to in order to justify how we do things. So on the big scale of society, who knows where it's going to go? I think the signs are not good at the moment, but we could pull back from the brink. What can we do as individuals? Well, first of all, I think we can certainly model in the way we operate and act in relation to others, uh, ourselves, that which we would wish to see in others. So I think there's a sense in which... We have an obligation ourselves, even in the face of great provocation, to behave with moderation, politeness, uh, and and be as as civilized and civilizing as we can. And also, I think, focus on the local. There's a limit to what any of us can do at the national level. Most of us just have a vote. In fact, in the States, I'm a green carder. I don't even have a vote at the moment. So there's not much we can do at a national level. But we can make a difference in our local communities. Uh, We can be good members of our local communities. We can be involved in the lives of our neighbors, of those around us. I can be involved in the lives of my students at college. I can open my house for hospitality. And I like to think that, you know, if there's an analogy, perhaps in the more recent past, you know, Eastern Europe, where was thoughtfulness? Where was decency? Where was humanity maintained in Eastern Europe? Underground at the local level. Pockets of resistance. And that's what I think we need to be thinking about, uh, certainly in the immediate future. Uh, We've lost the levers of cultural power nationally, but we can certainly be influences in our local communities.
1: Yeah, let's, if we could, uh, as we move towards the end of what's been a fascinating conversation, uh, to give you a a little scoopette for what it's worth, an Australian academic and historian. has written a review it's not been published yet but i intend putting it on my website as soon as it is he refers to this book of yours as probably and i'm quoting the most comprehensive interesting and true account of the origins of the modern world that's been published in the last 20 years that is this century so he's very generous about it i mean i i would join him in being generous about it but there's more to it to you and your perspectives you're also an ordained christian minister so can i you know give you the opportunity to say, how would you say that Christianity can throw light uh, on on our cultural situation and a better way forward? I mean, it's being rejected at the moment. It's being painted as part of the problem, as harmful, because it lays down, dictates about how we ought to live. Uh, And yet there's something about a need, as I see it, for a desperate return or a desperate need for a return to some external reference points uh, and to a a firm foundation for affirming the dignity and the worth of each individual, whether you like them or not, is irrelevant, really, to the way in which you ought to respect them as fellow human beings, as I see it, sharing your broad faith. I'd I'd love to just give you an opportunity to really give some heartfelt thought expression to how, how you think. Contrary to the modern narrative, in fact, Christianity offers a way for us to return to a decent humanity.
0: Yeah, good question. Uh, I think a number of ways. One, I'm mindful of what Jesus himself says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for each other. So I think there's a sense in which part of the answer, John, would be the church needs to be the church. The church needs to be the model of a truly loving community. That's basic. And one of the things I've noticed, again, with, with the young people I interact with at college is they want to belong. They want community. I actually think that a lot of the success of the LGBTQ movement has been that it offered lonely people looking for something to believe in and something to belong to, a community to belong to. So I think one thing the church needs to do is to recapture the notion of being a community. We can testify, if you like, to the truth of Christianity by being powerful loving local communities. Secondly, I think at a philosophical level, one of the, the things that, that, that I'm absolutely confident of is that most people have an intuitive sense of right and wrong. It may be twisted, it may be perverted, it may be darkened. We may disagree on what is right and wrong, but most people have an intuitive understanding that some things are right and some things are wrong. And in discussion, I think Christianity gives a reason as to why that should be so. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an opening there when, when post-modernism, postmodern relativism, relativism collapses under its own weight, maybe not as a cultural project, but for individuals, then Christianity, I, I think, can can speak to individuals and, and help explain to them why they think the way they do, why their intuitions are the way they are. Uh, and thirdly, I think that uh, Christianity is also committed to the public good. Uh, I often think of Augustine's City of God, Book 19. There he is writing uh, about you know, how Christians should operate within a pagan society. And he makes the point that Christians actually share a lot of common loves with non-Christian people. Uh, we want to see human beings flourishing uh, on in this world, it's not just an otherworldly religion. We want to see peace. Uh, we want to see people being good employees. And I think that too can be can be a witness uh, to the, the truth of Christianity. So there's no silver bullet here, but I think the best way that Christianity can speak to this current age is not, if you like, screaming and shouting from the soapbox. But by quietly demonstrating the truth of, of our message in very practical ways, uh, in the community of the church and in the way we operate within our our own local communities
1: was it, was it, was it Augustine who said, uh, preach often if necessary, with words?
0: <laughs> it might have been it might have
1: been <laughs> <laughs> uh, So I suppose that, you know, it takes you back to Rome in a way doesn't it It was the way uh, Christians were observed to love one another and to care for one another and to um, you know uh, uh, not dispose of unwanted baby girls, for example. Yes. Which was a very big thing and quite revolutionary at the time. Uh, it's a good thing to remember um, that that marked them out as different and struck a chord plainly with many people who did sense there was something very good that they could relate to here and were attracted to it. So we're starting on the back foot in our modern culture, but... Uh, I must say that um, I think the great challenge for what we might call all self-titled, self-titled um, progressives is, um, um, you know, how's it going for you? Because it doesn't seem to me that it's going very well. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think that's a very profound uh, observation, John. By the way, I like the fact I'm talking to somebody who can use a cricketing metaphor. I don't get that uh, don't get that uh, treat very often over here. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's very true. And again, uh, you know, you pointed back to ancient Rome. It is remarkable the, the the success of the Church in ancient Rome. And why? Well, one could say that the Church was marginal, and 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 I'd like to say that. There's a temptation, particularly at the moment when the church is being so dramatically and rapidly shunted to the margins, that we can can lament that. And it's right to lament that. But I think we also need to see it as an opportunity. Groups on the margins tend to form, naturally form strong communities. And if all we do in the current circumstance is lament and not also ask ourselves, well, how can this be an opportunity? What, what can we capitalize on here? Hey, we could become a strong community precisely because we all need to have each other's backs at this point. Uh, I, I think if we if we miss that opportunity, then we've squandered the times that the, the Lord has, has placed us in.
1: Well, you make the point, I think, in the book very effectively that just uh, uh, thumping out, look, you've got to return to the living the way we think you ought to live and trying to do that through political channels and what have you, that won't work. Um, The way we live is a symptom of what we believe and where our heart is and and, uh, our state of mind, I think, um, rather than the cause or the other way around. So uh, that return to authenticity, perhaps led by humility in recognition of the fact that uh, we haven't always behaved very well, uh, surely is going to be very important but Carl uh, you've been very generous with your time uh, you are a master with the English language in written form and, uh, and spoken and uh, thank you for helping us understand some really complex issues that are hard for people uh, in the street I think uh, decent people everywhere to get their minds around how did this happen and how do we understand it and how do we cope with the bamboozling logic and language that is now being thrown at us you've been very helpful indeed thank you
0: well thanks for having me on john it's been a real honor to uh, to speak to you you've been listening to john anderson direct for further content visit
1: johnanderson.net.au